Hello, everybody. This is Andrew Gamison, and I want to welcome you to the Speaking for Him podcast. So very thankful that you've taken the opportunity to spend some time with me today, whether you are a first-time listener or whether you've been listening for the last several years. Uh, you are welcome here. And I'm super excited this week that I will be featuring uh, the first part of an interview that I did with my friend William Betzelberger. William is a young man who I met through Friday Truth Group, which was a Friday night youth group that my friend Ben Biorley ran several years ago, and I had the opportunity to do a four-week uh, sermon series on the Ten Unchangeables of Life at that youth group, and that sermon series is in my sermon archive, so if you want to take the opportunity to check that out, go to speakingforhim.com. That's speakingthenumberforhim.com, and all of those messages are there. A few months ago, William started a Facebook page called Resilient Masculinity, and he expresses a desire much like mine to see biblical manhood restored in our culture. When I started speaking for him, my main purpose for doing so was to get back to the basic blueprint of the Bible, particularly as it relates to the roles that God laid out in his word for men and women. Those are non-negotiable, and this is a God who said, let all things be done decently and in order, and I hope that you will be blessed by the conversation that we had. Again, this is the first of two parts, so look forward to sharing that with you in a few minutes, but first, I want to talk to you about what is going on. Okay, the first thing I want to share with you actually was not in my notes, and I went back and forth as to whether I was going to say some words about this, but I'm going to go ahead and do so. On Sunday evening, as I was sitting in the kitchen with my family, I received a notification on my phone that Bob Saget had passed away suddenly at the age of 65. For those who don't know who Bob Saget is, he played Danny Tanner on the very popular show of the 80s and 90s, Full House. And I don't talk a lot about celebrities on this podcast, but Bob was one that impacted me greatly because Full House was one of my favorite shows. Now, as I was growing up watching Bob, I didn't realize that his raunchy stand-up is far different than his portrayals on the screen in Full House. But nonetheless, it hit me hard that he passed away, mostly because it was very surprising and shocking. He actually posted on his social media just a few hours before his death talking about how great it was to be back on the stand-up comedy circuit. And so Bob didn't know when his final days and hours were coming. He was living his life, just going about his business, and the time came for him to leave this life. And from all ind indications, from the fruits of his life, I don't believe Bob was a believer, and that saddens me. 
you know, there's a lot of mentions about him on social media these last few days, and a lot of them talk about heaven gaining a great soul. But I just want to encourage and admonish you that the only way heaven can be your gain is if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So may this death, as with so many others, be a reminder to us to get our priorities straight and to be ready to go when the time comes because we don't know when our last breath will come. The only thing we know is that it's guaranteed to everyone since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. My prayers and thoughts are with the Full and Fuller House casts, as well as with Bob's wife Kelly and the so many others that he touched. My prayer is that in one way or another, the Lord would draw himself close to you and that perhaps you would meet the one who conquered death. The next thing I want to talk about is the Supreme Court is gearing up to hear a case regarding the federal vaccine mandates from the Biden administration. Um, James, what do you think? How would the Supreme Court move on this? It's a gut call, I know, but I'm just curious what you think. Yeah, uh, my gut tells me that the administration's in trouble, that they're looking, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have to take any case, much less on an emergency basis. They've chosen to take these cases. I think they're looking at it and saying, hey, the Constitution pretty clearly defines the power to regulate for public safety, for public welfare, as a state power, not a federal one. So uh, I think these mandates are in a lot of trouble when they get up to the Supreme Court, but I guess we'll find out in short order. I always wondered, James, in the past whether the administration knew it was up against a legal wall on this, but the hope was that more people would get vaccinated, um, so it would be a net-net, you know, good end development for them. Um, 200 million Americans now have been vaccinated, or at least one shot, so they might have succeeded on that front. Yeah, I mean, look, there's certainly, uh, there may be a uh, politically and, and maybe health-wise a beneficial uh, aspect to this, no matter what happens to the litigation. But from a pure litigation standard, you know, Biden said way back when, I think it was President Biden, might have been Nancy Pelosi or both, that these federal mandates can't be done. They won't stay constitutional. So if you're a litigant in this thing, if you're representing the states, you're going to be quoting the very people that are pushing these mandates as saying they're failures, that they're not constitutional mm -hmm. under our system. So that that could be an interesting bad moment for the administration as well. Just a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, I know I've said this before, but I have never been against people getting the vaccine if they feel that it's the right thing to do. But what we're dealing with here with federal vaccine mandates is the federal government telling us how to manage our health. That's a totally different matter. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is just very frankly and very succinctly, if the vaccine is the answer that everyone touts it to be, why are we on our third booster and places like Israel are on their fourth shot of the year? The reality is that four shots of anything is not good for an individual. The third and final thing I will say 
is that the biggest problem I've had with this whole vaccine situation is that there hasn't been able to be an honest dialogue about the side effects and the risks of the vaccine. It seems like every other prescription or medicine has that, but with the COVID-19 vaccine narrative, we're not allowed to have these discussions. So my hope is that the Supreme Court will side with the people and say that the federal government has no right to make these mandates. Mandates are not laws. We've had this discussion a lot on the podcast because it's important for us to understand how our laws work. The next thing that's important to understand about the Supreme Court actions that will take place in the coming days is the fact that this covers the federal government's right to make vaccine mandates, which means that this does not preclude the state or local governments from making mandates of their own. I still don't think they're a good idea. The scope of this decision by the Supreme Court would be to tell the federal government that they, as the federal government, do not have the standing to tell people on the federal level that they have to be vaccinated. I'm really excited to let you know about a new movie that is coming out in the next couple weeks, and Lord willing, I will have a, a review of this film after it comes out. It is a film based on Francine River's Redeeming Love. Now, I actually started the year by reading this book. Um, I just finished it a couple days ago. I had read it back in high school, and so it was good to reread it. It's actually a Old West retelling of the story of Hosea. And in an interview that I heard by Francine at the end of the audiobook that I used, she talked about how it was her first Christian novel. She had been a writer of secular romance novels for a number of years, and God saved her gloriously, and for three years she didn't write a thing. And she actually thought at one point that her writing career was over, but God gave it back to her and said, I want you to write for me. And so she said Redeeming Love was kind of her testimony in fiction. And about how God loved her enough to draw her to himself. And to give you a brief synopsis of the story, the story is that Michael Hosea, a farmer during the California gold rush, is prompted by God to approach Angel, um, this prostitute in a local brothel, and ask her to marry him and come away with him so that he can give her the life that she deserves and get her out of the life of sin and debauchery that she is currently living in. And as I said, it is a retelling of Hosea. So it really just underscores the part of Hosea where Hosea is told by God to marry a prostitute and he marries Gomer. And through the course of the the book of Hosea, you, you see Hosea going back repeatedly to rescue Gomer from harlotry and to bring her back to himself. And so that is brought to bear in this story about Michael and Angel. And 
I was just struck afresh by the depiction of unconditional love that is in these pages. I understand that it's a novel. Um, and so there's a certain degree to which you could make the excuse that it's not realistic. Um, but I think it's a good reminder to us of what it means as a believer to pursue an attitude of unconditional love for the people in our lives. We are supposed to model the love of Jesus Christ, and the love of Jesus Christ says that no matter how undesirable you are, I'm still going to go after you. I'm still going to pursue you because I love you, and I died for you, and you have value. And so that's what this story portrays. Well, they decided to make this into a movie, and it was supposed to come out last year in 2021, but with COVID and things of that nature, it got pushed to 2022, so it is coming out on January 21st. 21st. Told your mother I could take good care of you. I love you more than anyone in this whole wide world. Her mom is dead. She'll be better off here. No, she won't. What's her name? You can call her whatever you want. You'll be my little angel from now on. Angel, how did you end up in this place? She doesn't talk about her past. You got any big plans? Plans? She can't keep me here. You forget where I found you, Missy. I made you a princess. Feel the power, Angel. The only girls who leave here are too old, too sick to work, or dead. I'm gonna kill you. Do it! You are not hidden. She's something to see, ain't she? Never been a moment you were forgotten. That's Angel. You are not whole. No one gets within a foot of her for free. I have to meet her. What's your pleasure, mister? I didn't come here for the bat. I hear whisper underneath your breath. Are you gonna marry me? Take me away from here. Give me the life I deserve. Mm -hmm. I've got too many demons. I don't know how to love. You do not choose the life you have, but you can choose the life you want. Serves a decent girl, not you. Did you think I couldn't find you? You have to stop thinking that I'm gonna be something that I'm not. That way is home. Your choice. Because of the topics at hand and the content in the book, although tastefully done, uh, I definitely recommend it for mature viewers. I believe it's going to be at least PG-13, so keep that in mind when you go to the box office. But I think it will be definitely worth watching, and there is a clear depiction of 
the gospel in the book, and I anticipate the same from the movie, especially since Francine Rivers, who wrote the book, penned the screenplay. So I just wanted to let you know about that movie coming up in the next couple of weeks, and I hope that you uh, can enjoy that and go out and support, again, good, godly, quality cinema uh, that is coming to us. What a blessing that is. All right, well, I'm super excited, as I said, to present the first part of this interview with William Betzelberger. I just had a really good and encouraging time with my brother. We share a lot of the same passions for God's Word and for the way that God intended families to be. So I hope that you enjoy this interview and that you come back for part two next week. We started with our quote of the day. I try to give a quote of the day every week, which is, usually either a Bible verse or a quote that I find. And this one I thought would be very good uh, as a jumping off point for our discussion. And that is being a male is a matter of birth. Being a man is a matter of choice. And that is by a quote by a man named Edwin Lewis Cole. Um, now I really don't know any other info about Edwin Cole, other than that I really like this quote. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that quote and that idea as we start out today. Well, I, one, I fully agree with it. Um, and I've had to change how I refer to people, um, especially when I'm talking about whether they're my friends or my coworkers, um, instead of t- calling them men, um, some of them are maybe more fully grown boys, if you will, um, because they don't act in a way that is manly. They don't act in a way that, um, whether it's how God defines it, or, you know, sometimes we have our own definitions. Like, for example, with resilient masculinity, I have a tagline that is safety, stability, and service. And that's kind of how I've pared down my, um, my definition of masculinity to those three. And uh, you can tell I'm a little bit of a pastoral uh, ministry geek when I use my three S's or my three P's or, you know, I like my alliterations. Alliterations are key, man. They are, but I do. I believe that being male is, it is a matter of birth, right? There's male and female. You either have male genitalia or female genitalia. Um, but being a man, you know, different cultures throughout throughout time, whether it's the U.S. or Europe, or you go to native tribes, uh, you know, whether it's here in the Western Hemisphere or Northern Hemisphere, and you know, the West that we would call like America and Greece and all that, or you want to go to, you know, the tribes of India or other untouched places. There's 
always been some kind of definition of what makes a man a man. Um, and it's, it's earned and it's fought for. It's not just directly given. Um, so, yeah. Well, and there's a couple of different things that spring to mind when we talk about this issue of male, uh, male by birth, man, man, man by choice. One is that now uh, we don't even have a real solid definition of men and women because anybody can decide to do whatever they want on any given day. Some people are women trying to be men. Some people are men trying to be women, specifically in the sports world. We're seeing that more and more. Absolutely. And then you even have the answer to both of these arguments to the world is to be gender fluid and just change from day to day. But when we're talking about manhood, we're talking about an unchangeable standard that God established. And Jesus Christ said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when I establish a standard, it's not going to change with the, with the winds of time. And the other aspect is that, and I even see some Christians falling in line with this. And that is that every few years we seem to see an article in popular culture talking about the end of adolescence Mm -hmm. and it gets older and older every year. And that's concerning to me because I I heard, you know, like two or three years ago, I think it was like almost mid thirties now when Mm -hmm. people are saying that adolescence actually ends. Um, But I think it's significant to me that the word teenager didn't even appear in print until a 1940s Reader's Digest article. And it's like ever since that point, we've been making excuses for people not to grow up rather than having them grow up. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, being a child and being a man. He doesn't really talk about Mm-hmm. There being an in-between time. Yeah. I think there's significance there. Well, and think about, you know, Jewish culture too, um, because while yes, Paul was both a Roman, he was also a Jew. Um, he, he loved using his dual citizenship for uh, the glory of God because he was willing to take his, you know, Roman citizenship and use it for good and even challenged certain things up to, you know, their version of the Supreme Court. He actually went to the king. So that was really cool. But in Jewish culture, when does a boy become a man? A man? Yeah, At 13, 13, right? Yep. So there is no teenage years. There's you're a child and then you're a man, right? You, you take those responsibilities. And that's why you see um, in... Native American cultures, you had counting coup. You'd actually write up to your enemy and touch them. And that was one of the processes that a boy transformed into a man when he, when he was able to prove himself in battle. So it has. It's just been this very recent time frame that we're like, oh, there's teenagers. And now there's young 20s and young adults. And we do. We keep pushing maturity further and further back and Society is none the better for it. Well, like, and I'm not saying we need to go back to this time period, but it's, it's 
significant to me to say that when George Washington was like 12 or 13, he was, he was running a whole uh, farm, a whole plantation. And now we get scared if our 15 year old wants to learn how to drive, you know, but I think a lot of that comes from the expectations we have Mm -hmm. Uh, a few years ago. um, Alex and Brett Harris, they wrote a book called do hard things. And the idea was that we need to challenge our youth to do hard things because it, you know, manhood and womanhood, both, they're not something that you decide to do overnight. They have to be a process. That's why starting at 13 with this mindset that you are a man, you're not going to have everything known or under control at that age, but, you are a man and your expectations are to grow from that point. I'm thankful for a dad who, who sat me down and, and had that discussion with me when I was 13 mm-hmm. because you have to grow. You have to be on a journey. And today yeah. we have this idea that, Oh, when you're 17, you're not a man, but when you wake up on your 18th birthday, you are, we're not equipping people to actually make that transition and be successful. Mm-hmm. And we make excuses uh, and say that we can't expect people to do hard things if they're young. So I think it's very important that we're having this discussion. You you know, you and I were talking about the the beginnings of our particular visions for ministry, and, and mine was simply this, that I felt when I was in my latter college years that there was, there was already a blurring of the lines. I... Thought, well, we need to encourage our youth to live more mature lives. And then as I started writing along those lines, I was like, well, God has very specific different things for men and women. It's not the same for both genders because God made them unique and different. And so that is why I wrote the book that you're referring to off the air, Men of Valor, a few years ago. And I, I just uh, reissued it Um I think it was January of 2020 or 2021 um, revised and updated. So it's available on Amazon actually as a paperback now. Um, So I would like to encourage anyone out there listening to take advantage of that resource. Could you just tell us a little bit about your growing up years? Yeah, absolutely. So I am, um, I'm from Holland. I grew up here in Holland. Uh, Technically, I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to uh, wonderful parents, uh, Sean and Juliet. And uh, my dad was a youth minister. My parents uh, met at Lincoln Christian College, which is a non-denominational Christian college down in Illinois. And so my dad was a youth pastor and traveled to a couple states with some ministry jobs and settled in Holland due to um, needing to be around family because my parents had four kids under the age of four, just quite a handful. Um, And my dad just needed a little bit more stable income. So while I wasn't born in Holland, uh, this has been my home since I was two. So um, from here, I grew up with my siblings. I was homeschooled. So I have three biological siblings. And then later on, and I'll discuss it in a little bit, um, I have two adopted brothers as well. Um, Growing up, my 
I'd say my biggest thing growing up was family. I mean, again, I was homeschooled, so constantly around my family. Um, I had very engaged family, whether it was my parents or my grandparents. And probably starting around the age of nine, my mom would send me over to my grandparents and we would have man training with my grandfather, uh, whether that was working on cars, um, working on small projects here and there, working on lawnmowers, mowing the lawn, taking care of the church's garden and, and lawn. We did that for several years. Um, and then, of course, whenever my dad was available, he would, you know, we'd have house projects with him too. But during the course of the day, he was at work. So part of our schoolwork was man training with my grandfather. And that was, I got to see more of the practical side of things in terms of practical skills for Hey, you know, home maintenance here, fix this light switch. Um, more along those lines. And, and my grandpa always had a good way of tying things to physical things, to spiritual realities. He was very good at telling parables is what he was. And he still is. Um, and I think that was one of the ways I was able to grow spiritually um, through some of the men in my life where they were very good at creating parables through the work we were doing. Um, around the age of 15, my family got licensed for foster care and we were licensed for five years. We ended up fostering four young people, uh, two of which are with their mother now. And then two of them, we adopted, um, at the age of 16, we adopted, well, he was in foster care, and then we later adopted him, a young boy named Vaughn, and he's nonverbal autistic, and I had no idea, no idea whatsoever how to work with kids, let alone someone uh, with that kind of special needs. And my prayer was that God would make me a good brother for him, and I became his primary caregiver while my mom was helping teach the other kids and school, the other kids. Um, and I, I would say that was probably my biggest change at the age of 16 in terms of going from more of a child like mindset to more of a manly mindset. Um, I, I took responsibility for him. So he needed showers, if he needed food, he needed watched constantly, and I became his caregiver, and that was a major shift um, maturity-wise, and I, I loved every bit of it. And then what's the name of your other adopted sibling? Uh, Tony, and that one, <laughs> uh, that was a different ride altogether. Um, he has reactive attachment disorder, um, which is common with kids uh, who are in the foster care system. And um, his, his special need is he has fetal alcohol syndrome. And for the first two years, um, I could not be in the same room as Tony without Tony throwing something at me, screaming at me, hitting me, kicking me. Um, and mind you, he, he was like six or seven 
when we adopted him. Um, so we're talking, you know, I was 18 being attacked by a, you know, seven-year-old, um, which that might sound weird, but like I was getting chased with steak knives, that kind of level of attack. So it was, there was some very legitimate uh, frustration there. Um, that was a whole different field of learning for me in terms of um, just learning how to deal with, with stress. Uh, that was not a very fun time in my life initially. Uh, Tony has mellowed out and I no longer live at my parents' house, but um, that was a very dark time in my life at that point uh, for two years, but God got me through that one. Amen. Well, I applaud you for taking the initiative to be that caregiver. I know that Mm -hmm. my brother is my primary caregiver and I wouldn't be able to do most of the stuff I do without him and other people taking care of me. Uh, Because for those who may be listening for the first time, I have been in a wheelchair my entire life. God has seen fit to open a lot of doors and, and make me able to do a lot of different things, including uh, this podcast and my traveling preaching ministry, which I'm very thankful for. So we talked about growing up. So tell us a little bit about your family now. All right. So in April of 2020, right as COVID locked everything down, uh, the lovely lady I was dating and I decided to get married. And uh, we got married at my parents' fireplace because, again, my dad's ordained. And um, that was fun. That was that was an interesting experience. So I've been married for just over a, a little bit over a year and a half, um, looking at almost two years. And uh, my wife's name is Toriana, and she is a fantastic young lady. Um, in November, uh, just a couple months ago, we welcomed our first furry pet of uh, ever. So we got a dog named Buckwheat. He is her dog, and he is fantastic. He is her little guard dog. He is funny. He's got a, he's a pit bull hound mix of some kind. We're not sure quite because he's a he's from the shelter, but um, he's a he's a great dog. So right now, um, I work. My wife is currently enrolled in school and will be graduating in April, and that's kind of how we spend our days. Well, that that's awesome. <laughs> So the thing that brings us here, as I, as I talked about um, a few minutes ago, is uh, your Facebook page and podcast, um, which are titled Resilient Masculinity. So could you just take a minute or two to tell us what does resilient masculinity mean to you and why did you decide to get started with this? Um, resilient masculinity. I chose that name specifically because I do see a lot of people talk about masculinity, talk about manhood. Um, but there seems to be, uh, and it's not always, but there does seem to be a missing component and that is resiliency. And we saw this a lot in the wake of COVID and a lot of churches shutting down. 
whether it was for two weeks and then they decided to stay locked down or this idea that there were men in position of righteous authority who bend the knee to powers that maybe they shouldn't. Um, For example, if you shut down your church for the government, when the government is not keen over the church, Christ is, and you're requiring things of your church that Christ does not command, then I would say you're not acting resiliently. You're, You're bending with the crowds. You're not standing strong against it. Fathers who leave their houses or who are absent altogether, they don't stand resilient to the pressures of this world, be it money or fame or their own selfish desires. So I wanted to create a movement. And later on, I had a few months in, I did, um, I did add a segment to that. That is the podcast uh, that encourages and inspires and equips men with the knowledge and the conversations to become more capable and resilient in this day. And as masculinity, both in general and more specifically, you know, moral, godly masculinity is attacked and maligned because it's going to take strong men who have strong convictions to stand up against what they're going to throw at us. Oh, absolutely. And I think that one of the things I would mention here is that you have to make decisions about that before you're in the position um, where compromise may be possible. I mean, you just look at what's happened in our states and in our country over the last year and a half to two years, you can see how government control works because it doesn't take very long before everything shut down because the government says that it should shut down. Um, and when people's livelihoods are at stake and they try to reopen, they get threatened, but really it's the people that stand up against that, that have allowed some of these things to reopen and I've allowed the economy to flourish because they say, you know what? I understand that you have concerns, but we have a livelihood that we need to pursue for our families and for our employees. And also another aspect is to, to live with knowledge, to live carefully, so to speak in these times and, and not, not say that there is nothing to be concerned about, but also not to live life in fear. And so I was having a conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and he said one of the problems is that for the majority of the world that is reacting to this COVID-19 crisis, all they have is this life. So they're trying to do whatever they can to hang on to this life because this is the best they have. But when you live with eternity in view, you know that even if God takes your life in this life, that this life is just preparation for the next life. Mm-hmm. And we, we've we had, um, we've known people that have struggled with COVID. We've, we lost a very dear brother from our church uh, just last month from COVID. So 
I know that it's real. Um, and my family experienced uh, that last month ourselves. But I also know that living life in fear is no way to live life. And uh, last year during the lockdowns, it was a really rough time for me because I went 86 days without leaving the house. And that will do things to you mentally. I can't even imagine how bad it would have been for me if I wasn't a believer. As someone that um, thrives on interpersonal contact and relationships, that was really difficult for me. And so I, I get what you're saying about the resiliency that, you know, things are starting in some ways to look up economically for our state. And it's because of the resiliency of the barbershop that said, I'm going to cut people's hair. Even if you threaten me, it's because of the restaurant owners that said, we need to be open regardless of how you threaten me. It's because of the people that stood up and signed the unlock Michigan petition. And I didn't intend for this, this episode to get political, but I've talked a lot more about politics on my podcast over the last several months, just because there's so much going on. And for those of you in my audience who have a problem with that, I would just encourage you and tell you that every political issue that we face is a moral issue. So you can't divide politics from the church. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. And yeah, I, for a while, I tried to stay out of politics. I had, you know, I knew it was getting messy and I didn't want to get into it and it you know, causes problems, right? You, I don't want to be that person. But when I started seeing pastors giving, let, let's, I'll use more Bible terms, right? I saw the pastors giving Caesar control over the bride of Christ and bride of christ is not the bride of caesar right the gathering of the church is not the government's job it they're not the head of the church christ is and when i saw pastors starting to give that authority to the government to dictate when christian believers gather together in worship and and thanksgiving and you know celebrating the the death burial and resurrection of christ as we're commanded to do and as we're encouraged to do and we're encouraged to do so as long as it, as it is called today. When I saw pastors starting to slip from that, I started saying, okay, there's too much going on that's compromising the integrity of the church. I have to start getting, again, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make it political, but I had to start making some kind of noise because Again, the church is not the government's, and Christ freed me by his blood, and i that means I'm no longer a slave, including to the government. And we'll be back with part two of our interview with William Betzelberger next week. I want to just say a quick thank you to William for taking the time to sit down with us and explain to us his passion for resilient masculinity. I hope that you have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 